announcements I've got. I think that's it. Let me, uh, let me pray one more time for us before we take a look at the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan tonight. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to open our ears and our hearts so that we might receive your word tonight. I pray if there is anything that comes out of my mouth that is uh, not true and not in accord with your word, I pray that it would fall on deaf ears. But if there is anything that I say that is profitable for life, I pray that it would reach down into the depths of our hearts and bring life. We thank you uh, for Christ, and it is in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, One uh, little introduction to this text. Um, I mentioned it last week, and I kind of botched it as I went back and listened to it. Um, What I was trying to say is that whenever we come to read the Bible as Westerners, right, people thoroughly steeped in Western culture and literature and all that stuff, um, the tendency that we have is to impose our own way of life and thinking on the Bible. But that's a bit of a problem because the Bible is a thoroughly... Eastern, Middle Eastern text, okay? And so it's quite unfair of us to just look at that and say, oh, that's obviously talking about this. And, you know, we kind of impose our ideas on it. But we can't do that. So for to rightly understand the scriptures, what we want to do is to try and get as close as we can to understand what was happening back then in the time and place when all of these things were going about so that then we might from that point come and make right application to our lives, so that's what we're going to try and do. Um, we'll, see, we'll see what goes. Um, one note in this uh, passage we're about to read. This man comes up asking Jesus, this lawyer, and says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a great question. Um, another way, another question that he's asking, and kind of the, a similar thing to eternal life, is he's saying, what does it take to enter the kingdom of God? Jesus came and his, his primary teaching was about the kingdom of God. And he was saying, I am a king who came to inaugurate or bring a kingdom. Now, it's a different kind of kingdom because it wasn't a military kingdom that went out and conquered lands. It was a kingdom, a spiritual kingdom. And as, this, as people were brought in, as people came to follow Jesus and his message and his teaching and receive forgiveness for God, from God through him, they were brought into this kingdom of God. And part of the kingdom of God is that those who have it and who enter in get eternal life. That you would live forever with God even after you die. So that's what this man is asking. So let's read this text together. You have in front of you on that sheet if you want to follow along. It's Luke chapter 10. We're going to begin in verse 25. This is God's word. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, Jesus, uh, Jesus, to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he, Jesus, said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, the man, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. 
Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. And then he set, on him, he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Uh, my wife, Sarah, who is back there. Sarah, give a little wave. Great. Um, she's embarrassed. Um, she's from Louisiana, uh, so I married into a Louisiana family. Now, she has, she's from a big family, several sisters. And one of her sisters married a guy from North Louisiana. And I was listening to this guy's father tell a story last Christmas. Um, I was out hunting with them. I'm not a hunter. The only time I ever go is when I'm there for Christmas. Um, but we were sitting around this hunting lodge, and this guy starts telling this story, and he is a phenomenal storyteller. I would love to give you the 15-minute version, but I'm going to give you the two-minute version. He was talking about this man who worked on uh, his farm. This guy has lots of land, and he's a farm owner. And he was talking about this man who worked for him. And this man had come to him not that long before, and he was so excited because he had just seen the movie Titanic, right? This is this past Christmas, so maybe it was on TV, right, on TBS or one of those rerun stations. Um, but this man had just seen it, and he was so excited about this, this movie. He loved it. And so uh, Robert Barham, uh, my, I guess family member of sorts, said to him, well, tell me about it. Tell me about the Titanic, having seen the movie already. And this man says, well... There was a boat named the Titanic, and the rich people stayed up on the top deck, and they ate steak and pies. And the middle class people, they stayed in the middle of the boat, and they ate bologna and cheese. And the poor people, well, they stayed in the bottom of the boat, and they ate the scraps, which was an interesting take on the whole story of the Titanic. But he then said, and then they hit an iceberg. And they all had a common problem. Pretty insightful, right? Not the traditional take on the Titanic. But that's the lens through which this guy saw that story. Well, you see, when Jesus came preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God, which he did often, one of the cornerstone marks of that teaching and the, and the message that he was trying to get across is that there is, there is no one who gets a leg up before God. There are no gradations to us when we stand before God. We are all in the same ship. We all have the same problem. Right? That this iceberg called sin has come in and has essentially leveled us all. There are no classes. There are no distinctions. There are no good people and bad people. None of us are good when you stand before God and His goodness. We all have a common problem, and that is that we need to be rescued, much as the people on the Titanic. Well, the text we just read, it teaches of a man who, in essence, lived on the top deck of the religious circles in his time. 
He was a lawyer in that day. And a lawyer is not like a lawyer in our day. A lawyer in that day is one who studied the scriptures for a living. He was there to settle disputes about the Old Testament, the law of God. And so that was his job, that was his profession, it was his livelihood. And so to best understand what's going on here, it helps us to see how this text flows. Because if we're to get into the the flow of this story, we need to see how it's laid out. Now Luke, the, the one who records the story, lays it out in beautiful form. And the way he does it is that there are two rounds of discourse between Jesus and this lawyer. Okay, and I put the first one up behind us. The way that it happens is that the lawyer, and you can kind of look down there and see this, the lawyer asks Jesus a question in verse 25. And rather than coming out and answering him right out, Jesus returns the lawyer with a, with a question, with a follow-up question. And then the lawyer answers the follow-up question, and then Jesus answers the original question. Okay, so that's what he does here at the first, and then he turns around and does it again in this same pattern. The lawyer asks the question, Jesus asks the follow-up, the lawyer answers, and then Jesus answers. Okay, so that's what's going on here. Now, we're just going to march down through this. And in order to fully get what's happening in this parable, we have to understand that there is more going on here than just this kind of moralistic call to go and be a good neighbor. Okay, which is how most of us, I would suggest, have most often heard this passage. That is there, but there is far more going on here, okay? So let's look at this first part. Let's look at this question that this lawyer asked Jesus in verse 25. He stands, which is a sign of respect for a teacher. But then he reveals his heart motive. And it says that he stands to to question Jesus or to test Jesus. And he asks this great question. What can I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what can I do to enter this kingdom of God that you've been teaching about Jesus? And so... On one hand, it's, it's a great question. It's a phenomenal question. It's a question that anyone who rightly comes into God's presence and senses a sense of your unworthiness before a holy and just and good and loving God, you've got to ask the question, so how do I get to be in your good graces? That's what this guy's asking. How do I inherit eternal life? But on the other hand, it's... A ridiculous question because what can anyone do to inherit anything? You only receive an inheritance upon death. But nonetheless, he asked this question because you see his religious framework, being a very a student of the law, a professor of the law of sorts, within his religious framework, he had a system that said that he could do something to inherit eternal life, that he could do enough right things to obligate God to bless him or to give him eternal life or entrance into this kingdom. He was not interested in the way that God actually set up the law, which was a system to where the law actually kills you. It it shows you how much you can't do, and you therefore have to rely on God's mercy, but this man wasn't interested in that. And we'll see that more fully in just a moment. But before we just go on calling this man ridiculous, I want us to think about this for just a moment as it relates to us. This functionally is the way that a lot of us live our lives. That even if we have this great theology, this robust and full biblical theology that says, no, I'm received into God's presence by grace alone, only by what Jesus did, 
I would ask you a follow-up question and say, then why do you spend so much of your time worrying what God thinks about you? Why, when you really screw up in your life, when you keep doing those things with your boyfriend or girlfriend, or when you um, don't do the things that you know you ought to do for the people around you, or maybe you're getting gossiped about or something like that, why do you feel so insecure in God's presence? I suggest that we slip back into this man's mentality. We begin to think that it's actually my performance that, that merits God's approval of me in some way. Well, Jesus then responds to this lawyer with a question of his own in verse 26. He says, and turns to him and says, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? You see, Jesus points this man to the Old Testament scriptures. It was this guy's wheelhouse. It was the very thing that he was supposed to know and know very well, and he does. But note that Jesus is not pointing him out to some other tradition, to, hey, why don't you go talk with your buddies? Jesus is pointing him to scripture and saying, you tell me. The key to eternal life is in the Word right there. So tell me, how do you read it? What does it say? And instead of, so instead of answering the lawyer, he's drawing him into a fuller understanding of what actually is in the Scripture. He's drawing out the lawyer's heart. And in doing so, Jesus is illustrating to this lawyer that it is completely possible for a man, for a woman, for one of us even, to have all of the right answers and yet have a heart that is far from God that is far from loving God have great theology but a heart and actions and a life that doesn't line up with that at all and so that's what Jesus does tell me how do you read it what is your take and so the lawyer then turns to answer Jesus' question in verse 27 Jesus had just given him a softball right this guy is an expert so tell me what the Old Testament says And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Which is the best response he could have given. That is the best, that is the right answer. You see, for him, as a Jewish man, a lawyer in that day, and even if you're a Jew in our day and age, if you go to a synagogue, you will hear uh, practicing Jews recite this. It's called the great Shema, the great voice, the great ear. And they respond in unison saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. It was the cornerstone of the Jewish faith, and it still is. So he got it right. In fact, he got it so right that elsewhere, Jesus himself has asked, What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus gives this answer. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And there's a second commandment just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This guy gave the right answer. One's love for God comes first, and that flows into our love of others, our love for our neighbors. So Jesus then turns after this man's answer, and he answers the lawyer's initial question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? This man gives the answer, and he says, You have answered correctly, verse 28. Do this, and you will live. You see, what's happened, though, in this is that with the lawyer answering so precisely and so rightly, he throws down his own gauntlet. He is setting up the course by which he must tread and live. 
And friends, it's an impossible course. (laughs) The lawyer has set the bar out there, and it's an impossible bar. So the question is not what this man ought to do. He has answered what he ought to do. The question becomes all about this man's willingness and desire to actually do that. True saving faith in God is not just having the right answers. It's not just having orthodoxy, right doctrine. It's also having right practice, orthopraxy. That orthodoxy flows into orthopraxy, and this man, we will see, comes up short. Think about it this way. If you go to a professor of yours halfway through the semester, let's say you've, um, you know, you've really slacked off for the first half of the semester and you've taken all these weekend trips before when you should have been studying, you've been staying up until 3 a.m. playing with your girlfriend's hair uh, and watching Doctor Who and all sorts of stuff like that. And you get to the middle of the semester and you're thinking, you kind of look down, you know, you get the midterm back thinking, ooh, not going so great here. Uh, I know, I'm going to go, let's see, when are my uh, professor's office hours? I'm going to go talk to him. So you walk in there and you, you know, the long face, the rehearsed speech. Uh, Professor, what can I do, uh, you know, to kind of round out those grades a little, to raise them for the second half? And he says, well, do you have your syllabus? To which you pull it out, because I know all of you keep your syllabuses in your bag. Um, You pull it out and he says, hey, what does it say at the top of page two? You flip back to page two and it says in bold, to succeed in this class, dot, dot, dot. And he gives about four bullet points right there, right? And it's the normal stuff like, you know, you must read in a ridiculous amount of hours outside of class. And for every one hour you're in class, you need to study for three hours outside. The things that you've never done, um, but which in theory, if you did them, would actually work very well. <laughs> and so he says, well, there's the answer right there. But you see, upon receiving that message, upon reviewing the syllabus, seeing the law in front of you, there's a really strange thing that happens in your heart. The problem that you have is not with it's not with the syllabus. It's that you want to do so many other things. It's that you have a heart that at once looks at that and says, I know, I know that's the way to get a good grade. But gosh, I really want to play Super Smash Brothers for five hours every night. Or I really want to, you know, it's Labor Day, so there's big sales online. I really want to go shopping online for the next four hours and not do what I ought to do. Right? So the problem isn't with the law, it's with what we do with that. Okay. The problem then that the lawyer has, as I mentioned, is that it is impossible to keep this law. So his problem is greater than yours. You can actually do that if you want to, but he can't do it. It's impossible to keep the law perfectly. In Luke 18, Jesus uh, is, is in a discussion very similar to this one. The people are around him asking, asking him, hey, teacher, what do we do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, uh, keep the commandment, right? Do all these things. Love God and love your neighbor perfectly. And the people in that story, in Luke 18, they got it. And we know that they got what Jesus was saying because they paused and said, well, who then can be saved? Like, if we have to do that, then who can be saved? Who can inherit eternal life? Who can enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus follows up and says, with man it is impossible. But with God all things are possible. So Jesus himself is saying, it is impossible to keep the law. But this man was going to try. He was going to try. 
You see, some of your friends, and perhaps even some of you, have left the faith entirely. They grew up in a Christian home. Or perhaps you're not a Christian, you've never been, but you have observed your friends who are Christians from far off, and you have seen just how consumed they are with just doing good things, with following the rules, with keeping the laws and all of that, and you see how miserable they are when it doesn't happen. And you kind of stand off to the side and say, whoa, no thanks. Like, I'm having tons of fun just doing my own thing, and I don't really want that. That seems miserable. See, what's happening with your friend, or if that's you, again, is that you're seeing the syllabus laid out to you in the law of God, this perfect standard, and you're trying to follow it to make yourself right with God, and it can't happen. It will never happen. It will only kill you. Well, before we move on, let's pause for a second. Jesus says to this man, do this and you will live. He says, do it. If you want to inherit eternal life on your own, just follow this perfectly, right? No big deal. Do it. Anyone in their right minds will throw their hands up and say, I'm out. Jesus, I can't do that. But this man's response is pretty striking. The lawyer then asks Jesus a second question. He's lacing up his shoes. He actually wants to play the game. He actually wants to enter into this contest with Jesus, this challenge. And it says in verse 29, seeking to justify himself. He was going to try and do it. He actually was going to try and do it. He stands before God and says, let's see. I've actually kept the first half of that. He doesn't say this, but this is what's happening. God, I've followed you. I have loved you with my whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. But let me just get a clarification question on that next part. Who is my neighbor? Like, Who actually do I have to go out and love around me? The implication here is that this man thinks he's doing pretty good. He's ready to take on the minutia of this. And he was really, really hoping that Jesus would answer as his friends would have answered. Which we know from studying the the rabbinical and the traditions of the first century in Jewish culture. That the people around there said that the Jewish people were only obligated to love their friends and their relatives. This man was really hoping Jesus would say, hey, just go, your neighbor, that's your friends and your family, just go love them. And this guy would have walked walked away justified. Because he would say, man, I've done that. I'm in. I get eternal life. I get to enter the kingdom. Um, Well, this gets to be a problem. Because when he asks Jesus, who is my neighbor, Jesus responds with this parable. And follows it up with a question. So obviously we need to look at this parable. What's going on here? Well, watch Jesus answer him in dramatic fashion. The question that this lawyer has asked him. First in the parable, you see that there was a man traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Okay, now you have to see that was a well-traveled path in that time. It was a very busy, as it were, kind of pathway, highway, whatever you want to call it. It's about 17 or 18 miles long, and the descent was 3,200 feet. Jerusalem was up in the hill country, up in the mountains, and this would have been a fairly difficult passageway down into the plains to where Jericho was. So there have been all these crags, there would have been these boulders and outcroppings of rocks and everything, which was perfect, a perfect place for robbers to hide. And it was well known that thieves and robbers were all over this pathway. 
And so people would be encouraged to travel in big groups and to bring people to protect them. But here's a man who, when traveling down that road, presumably by himself, gets attacked by these robbers. Um, The Jewish readers of this text would naturally assume that he was a Jew because he was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Okay, His origin was in Jerusalem. And upon being attacked, we read of his condition in here, which is not incidental. We read that he was stripped and half dead, that he was half dead and stripped. Now, half dead in that day and in the Greek language of that day meant this. It doesn't, you know, it's not like you're playing a video game, you got zero to a hundred and he's at 50. It's like if you're playing a video game, zero to a hundred, he's at 99. You see, the next phrase they had for describing the hundred was one just expiring. Okay, so he was half dead. The next thing to happen to him is expiration, his death. He was unconscious. He had hardly any life left in him. So that's his condition as he's laying here. But then we read he's stripped naked. Well, why does this matter? Well, in that day along that road, which was highly traveled, the way that anyone would identify themselves was through their speech, the way your voice sounded and the the words and the customs that you used in your language, and also in your dress and things that you wore. Thus, the few quick... For anybody else on that road, a few quick questions would be able to identify where you're from. Someone would look at you and they would ask you a question. You would respond and say, oh, that guy's from Jericho. Oh, that guy's from Jerusalem. Oh, that guy's from Galilee. But this man's half dead. He's unconscious. He can't say anything. There's no way to identify him through his speech. So naturally, it's said, oh, then we'll look at his clothes. We'll look at his garb and see what he has on. Well, he's stripped naked. He's got nothing on. This man has been reduced to a mere human with no identity, a mere human in need. So the question becomes, who will help him? The lawyer has asked Jesus the question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus, through this parable, begins to rework the question and says, no, who will be a neighbor to this man? first option that comes upon the scene is a Jewish priest in verse 31. You see, the Jewish priest would have been a likely candidate to come and bring help for this guy. We think we know that he's Jewish because he also is going down. That's the natural reading of this passage. And so he would have come along. What do we know about the priests of that time? Well, they were the upper class of society. He would have been on par with this lawyer. He was on the top level of the religious circles. And he most certainly would have been riding a horse or some sort of mule or animal down there. He wouldn't have been walking that path because he was high society. It would be like in our day and age, if uh, perhaps some of you grew up on a farm or you know, you're just kind of familiar with farm lingo. If the farmer looks out and says, I'm going to town, and it's town 17 or 18 miles away, uh, he's not walking. <laughs> right? He's going to hop in the pickup and go to town and get whatever he needs and come back. The same thing with this guy. He would have hopped on his animal. He would have ridden down in there before coming back. So why would this priest pass him by? Why would he not offer help here? Well, we don't know explicitly. Um, The sources very close to this time and the people very close to this area would have said that this priest most likely is a prisoner of his own theological legal kind of construct. And this is what I mean by that. 
that his problem becomes a balancing of commandments. Because as a priest, someone very steeped and knowledgeable of the Old Testament and the scriptures would have known that he was obligated to help this man. That it was in there. You know, love your neighbor as yourself. So that would have been one thing going on in his mind. But on the other hand, he would have had this sense of knowing that he was a priest. And one of the priest's primary roles was cleanliness. They were supposed to stay clean. They weren't supposed to be defiled because the priests serve in the temple. And the dirty people came to the temple and the priests would absolve them of their, of their filth through sacrifices and all these things. But one of the primary conditions of being a priest is that you were to stay clean. That you weren't supposed to associate with filthiness of the time. And there was hardly anything more defiling than something or someone or an animal that was dead. And so we get the picture, then the priest comes upon this man lying out on the path, and it just says that he crosses over to the other side. He passes by on the other side. So the priest doesn't help. Maybe this Levite will help. Verse 32, so, so what's a Levite? Well, a Levite doesn't quite have the same, the same stature as the priest, but he also is very involved in the religious system, in the temple, and he would serve, and he also would be very steeped and knowledgeable about the Scriptures. And so he would come with a, with a moral obligation that I need to help this person. I need to go and help this man who is laying half dead on the side of the road. Okay, well, he, we read that he came to the place. There's this sense that the priest just passed around on the other side, but that this guy gets a little closer. He maybe comes upon the man sitting here and then decides that he's going to leave too. You see, the people who ought to have done something don't. They pass by and leave this man to himself. The locals um, who would read this text as I read it and study it, they say naturally after you have a priest and then a Levite, he, they say the next, the natural person that comes next to come upon this person is going to be just kind of an average Jewish man. Right? Because so far it's Jew. It's a very Jewish story. So obviously a Jewish man is going to come along, you know, some sort of peasant, and he's going to rescue this man and be the hero of the story. And that would have been well and good and fitting in, the, in that time. That would have made sense. And it's only in that backdrop that we see... The utter stark, the stark comparison with who actually comes. Because who do we read that comes in the next verse? The Samaritan. So to understand just how incredible it is that Jesus has a Samaritan as the hero of this story. Let me read something to you that a man named Ben Sirach, who was a rabbi in 200 B.C., Okay, so 200 years before, or 200 or so years before this story, listen to what this guy says. He's a Jewish man. Listen to what he says about his uh, fondness, or rather his hatred for the Samaritans. He says, There are two nations that my soul detests. The third is not a nation at all. The inhabitants of Mount Seir and the Philistines, and those stupid people living at Shechem. Shechem was the capital for the Samaritans. It's kind of funny to think of someone 200 B.C. saying those stupid people living in Shechem. Friends, that is how hated the Samaritans were. In fact, if that's not enough, the people of that day and age, in their synagogue, during their worship services, they would pray to God that the Samaritans would not inherit the kingdom of God. I'm not going to go in fully why they're so hated. You can ask me later if you want. 
But they were deeply despised and hated by the Jewish people. Deeply despised. So the priest goes down to the road. The Levi comes to the place. But it is the Samaritan who actually goes to the man. That's what the passage says. What happens to him? Well, it says that he had compassion. The root word for compassion there is that he felt something in his innards, inside of him. He had a gut-level response to this man, this unidentifiable man who is lying on the road, dying. And this Samaritan looks on him, and he is deeply affected. Something is going on in him. He then takes that man and puts him on his own animal. He gets down from his animal and, and would naturally put this man on and lead him down. As a servant would lead his master, this man takes on the role of a servant and takes this man down to an inn where he pays for him to be cared for and he gives him oil and puts it on his wounds and all these things. He absolutely does everything necessary for this man. He does everything that the priest and the Levite didn't do. But think about this. If you were a Samaritan and you rolled into an inn with a half-dead Jew on on your horse, the innkeeper is going to look at you like the innkeeper in the, in the 1800s would look at an Indian coming into the saloon in the hotel with a scalp cowboy on his horse, the innkeeper is going to say, what did you do to him? What did you do to him? And the Samaritan would be so fortunate if he were to escape alive. Because it would be so naturally assumed that he was the one who did this to this man. Maybe felt bad about it and brought him down. But he does, and he takes this man to the inn, and he pays for him to be taken care of. And then we read that he not—he doesn't leave him there for his own. His real compassion is seen that this man says, I will return for you, and I will pay any additional debt or obligation that your care has incurred. So in illustrating what it means to be a neighbor... Jesus has a Samaritan assuming this great responsibility to care for this man at tremendous cost to himself. Here's the Samaritan, the hero, in such contrast to the robbers at the beginning of this story. You see, whereas the robbers leave him for dead... The Samaritan leaves him taken care of. And whereas the robbers abandoned him, the Samaritan promises to return. Whereas the robbers took everything from him, this man gives of his own resources and money to care for him. The Samaritan is bringing full and complete redemption, restoration to this man in his, help, in his helplessness. So the final scenario here. Jesus turns and asks the lawyer the question, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to this man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So in the opening question of this round, the lawyer wants to know which or how many people do I need to be neighbors to? Who's my neighbor, Jesus? Just tell me. Give me a list that I can follow. And Jesus looks at him with an emphatic statement and said, you go and do likewise. And he has essentially got this lawyer by the, by the arms and the shoulders saying, you have to go and do this fully to everyone around you. This is what neighbor love means. 
This is what it means to care for those around you. If you want eternal life, if you want to do this on your own and inherit eternal life, you must love not only this man, you must love everyone perfectly. But not only that, this man had first to love God perfectly. He's in quite a predicament. And the parable ends there. And the lingering question is, who is able to do these things? Who is able to love God with every fiber of your being? And who in the world is able to turn to everyone around you and love them perfectly, fully? Who can do that? You see, the message of the gospel, the story of scriptures and the thrust of the whole Bible is that it is constantly taking us away from our own actions and having us focus on the actions of one person, upon the actions of Jesus Christ. Because you see, when hearing the question, who can do these things, no one can say, I can. God, hey, me. No one can do that. And so the Bible says you have to stop looking at yourself and you have to look at Jesus. You have to look at what He has done for you. But there also is a moral component to this. I said it's not completely uh, a moral story, but there is a moral component. And that to live in God's kingdom, to be a person who claims to be a Christian, to follow Jesus, means that we are called to love all sorts of people around us. This means this. That if you're in a fraternity or sorority, you're called to love the people who aren't. And then if you're not, you're called to love the people that are. And I know it goes both ways. Because I was in a fraternity, and then I was out. And I know what it feels like. This means that if you're white, or you're native to this country... And you claim to be a Christian, one who loves Jesus and is in this kingdom, then you are obligated to love those who aren't white and to care for those around you who look different than you. The bar is infinitely high, it's so high that you could never do that. That we're left defeated at the prospect of that being what we have to do to enter eternal life. And I would suggest that you'll never even start. You'll never even do it once. Until you've realized that there is a God who radically entered the brokenness of your life. When you were half dead. When you were dead. When you were naked. When you had nothing. And who came and pulled you back to life. And who paid the full price to bandage the wounds that affect you most deeply. Friends, you can't even begin to move out and help others out of a right heart until your heart has been righted by Jesus. And what he has done for us in bringing us forgiveness. You see, Jesus didn't play by the religious rules in his day, and I'll finish with this. Jesus did not play 
by these religious rules. He didn't let people stay on the different tiers of the ship. And because he didn't, hear this, he delivers us from a set of religious rules also. He delivers us into the kingdom of God by grace. There's nothing, there's nothing that we could do to earn it. We don't deserve it. And I can't help but think there's a part of every one of us in here that longs for that. That longs for someone to do everything necessary to bring you in to that kingdom. To bring you into a right relationship with God. Who looks at you and says, look, don't even try to do all the rules. Look at my son. He has done them all for you. Take his list. Take his accomplishments. Trust that through him I will accept you. And you know what? You think it's hard to love the people, your own neighbors, the people around you who are different from you? I wonder what it was like for Jesus to leave perfection. For him to leave the throne room of heaven. And to enter into this world of brokenness and sin. And to say, you know what, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to willingly enter in and be faithful to what God has sent me here to do. And He is a Savior who doesn't care which level of the ship you're on. He doesn't care. He's come to rescue you from the common problem that we all have. is that we are the man, we are the woman on the side of the road who is in need of great help. And Jesus has come to help us. He has come to rescue us by grace. I wonder if you would receive that. I wonder if you would hold to that. Let's pray.